Amen. All right, so what we're doing this morning is part three of the same thing we've been doing for the last two weeks. Well, Missions Conference in the middle of it. But we're doing a series on strategies to kill your sin or weapons that we have in the middle of the war against our sin. Um, you might remember we're basing this in Romans 8.13, which reads, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And we established, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, that this doesn't mean that we are saved by killing our own sin. Because, because Paul says here in Romans, if by the Holy Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, which means this is written to Christians. It's people who already have the power of God through the Holy Spirit living within them to kill their sin. Um, it implies we've already received Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. And now through that grace that he has given us, we're seeking to live according to his grace and not according to this old man, this old sinful man, that we once were. Because, you know, sin brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. And the sin that still remains in Christians is this remnant of death inside somebody who's alive to God. So we're putting to death the death so that we can really, truly, fully live in God's righteousness. Um, and we've looked at several weapons. I think we left off at weapon 12 last week. Um, we looked at the desire for sin to die, prayer. We looked at the heart um, and humility and community. We talked about this idea of putting off and putting on. Uh, and this morning we're going to hit eight more weapons, which brings us up to a solid 20. Uh, eight weapons that we can use in this battle to put our sin to death. So three weeks in, I'm, I'm hoping that this hasn't just been all theoretical by now. That you've actually taken some of these weapons and you've put it, put it into practice. That you've been fighting whatever that sin is that we're strategizing against. And maybe you're like, hey, I've done the two Sunday school lessons. We've had three weeks to work on this. And I thought I'd be a lot better than I am. Um, maybe we're a little discouraged by the lack of progress. But fighting discouragement goes hand in hand with fighting our sin, right? We're weak, we're needy, and we get discouraged when change doesn't happen instantly. So, so let me start with a couple things that we can remember as we fight our sin to fight the discouragement. So weapon 13 in this war is fight knowing it's a one war, Right? That, that, that should be an encouragement to us. There's no way this war against your sin will actually finally be lost. The battle rages, but Christ has already won the war. Right? On, on his bloody cross, through his victorious resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated sin, your sin, my sin. Uh, we read in 1 Corinthians that sin is the sting of death. And because death has been defeated, one day death will be thrown into the lake of fire and its sting, our sin, will go with it. Sin has already been defeated. And so there's no way we're going to lose. Um, so don't be discouraged when you fail, when you slip back into old patterns, when your fighting isn't hard enough. 
we don't wallow in failure. Like I said last week, I was quoting um, Pastor Jack Hughes. He says, don't be a beanbag and just stay on the ground when sin throws you down. Be a bouncy ball. Bounce right back up. Repent, confess, and keep fighting. Uh, the battle we face every day is like, you know, the relatively obscure battle of Fort Boyer, um, which was the final battle in the War of 1812 after uh, the U.S. defeated the British in the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, the British took about 3,000 other troops and they marched um, eastward uh, over by Gulf Shores, Alabama. We don't know the exact location. And they found Fort Boyer with her measly 400 American soldiers. Um, so the British Army surrounded it. Americans were outnumbered about 10 to 1. They couldn't get any reinforcements. They couldn't get any supplies. Uh, so on February 11th, 1815, the, the commander, William Lawrence, surrendered Fort Boyer to the British Army. Uh, but a couple of days later, America got her fort back, right? Not because we got more people to fight and we sieged the fort, not because there's some, you know, amazing military scheme where we could go 10 to 1 and outnumber and outdefeat the, the British armies. No, they, they got it back because a messenger arrived. Just a few days after, after America surrendered, a messenger from the British army arrived and they told the new commander, hey, give the fort back. We surrendered two months ago. Back in, uh, in December 1814, the British lost the War of 1812. The message just hadn't reached down to southern Alabama yet. So we fought the battle. They lost the battle. And a few days later, they found out, you know what? That was real. It was an important fight. But we won the war. Our losses are never final because Jesus Christ has already won this war that we're fighting. And so when you fall back in sin, don't give up. Don't be convinced that all is lost here. Know that Christ has already won, even though our battles are still playing out. So be encouraged in your fight. Our defeat is never final. Jesus' victory always has the last word. Fight knowing this is a one war. Or we can use weapon 14 here, which is fight with spiritual jujitsu. J-U-J-I-T-S-U, if you're taking notes. The red underline just went crazy on me there. Um, from what I understand of martial arts, maybe someone can correct me here, but the thing that makes jiu-jitsu unique from any other discipline, I guess, is that your offense and your defense are combined into one, right? It's the art, science, I don't know. It's the, it's the strategy of taking your opponent's strength and using it back against him, right? So he throws a punch, and you deflect it, so the punch injures him and not you. He throws a kick, and you deflect the kick. Um, so when, when Satan throws out accusations against you, don't believe them, but, you know, reverse them. Play the Uno reverse card. Send it back in Satan's face, um, Martin Luther was a master at this. I love just reading quotes of Luther here. For example, he says, When the devil tells us we're sinners and therefore damned, we may answer, Because you say I'm a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. Then the devil will say, No, you'll be damned. And I'll reply, No, because I fly to Christ, who has given himself for my sins, 
Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness, distrust, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy. On the contrary, when you say I'm a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that I can cut your throat with your own sword and tread you under my feet. For Jesus Christ died for my sins. My sin is on his shoulder, not mine. So when you say I'm a sinner, you don't terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. Don't fall for the devil's accusations that, you know, your sins condemn you, that God doesn't love you, that he has not given you the spirit to fight your sin. Rather, know what the word of God says against you and use his accusations against him. Use them to comfort you in the gospel. Use them to re remember that as Ephesians 1.7 says, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, that we have forgiveness of our sins, according not to our actions, but according to the richness of God's grace. So use the truths of Scripture to do, you know, spiritual jujitsu against the devil. Use his accusations not to push you away from Jesus, but to push you closer to Jesus. Don't be discouraged by the attacks of the devil. Um, which actually leads to weapon 15, right? We're just cruising through these. Use Scripture as a weapon, right? Memorize Scripture. Scripture, it's, it's the sword of the Spirit. So let's use it like a weapon, right? But here's the thing about swords. If, if you're in battle and your sword's at home on the coffee table, it's not going to do you any good, right? You have to have it on you. You need to have Scripture ready to go. You need to have it memorized. It needs to be sheathed to your hip so you can grab it and fight at a moment's notice. Um, a formal, former pastor told me the way he does it, he's like, I want to memorize eight to ten passages of Scripture, right? Some that maybe encourage me in my fight against sin, some that are maybe a write about lust or gossip or fear or whatever it is about my sin, and a couple that scare me about my sin. And, and, and I think of these as like bullets in my clip. And so when temptation comes knocking at the door, I open it up and I just run through all 10 verses in my mind and I unload that clip on the temptation until it's dead, dead, dead. Every one of those, the encouragement, the scary verses, the ones specifically about your sin, they will help you not give in to temptation by seeing it for what it truly is. I mean, when we read in Psalm 119, 11, that I have stored up your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you, I mean, that's, that's not quite a peaceful verse, right? Maybe it is sometimes, but usually that's a summons to war, saying, my, my gun is loaded, I have the bullets necessary, let's go to war on sin and start fighting. So we fight with the sword of the Spirit. We fight with this weapon of Scripture by memorizing it, but not just memorizing scripture, right? Um, we'll call this weapon 16. We meditate on scripture. We meditate prayerfully on scripture. Um, I mean, a lot of us aren't used to meditation. Anything we do, we think, or legs crossed, fingers out, going, um, this kind of Buddhist Eastern meditation where the goal is to 
empty our minds of all thoughts. Um, Christian meditation is the exact opposite. We don't want to empty our minds. We want to fill our minds up with thoughts of God. I mean, a lot of times we treat Scripture like a pill, right? We want to take it as quickly as possible and just get a result without really doing anything. You know, hey, I have this sin issue. Well, take two verses and call me in the morning. It's, it's that kind of thing. But when we meditate on it, it's not like a, like a pill. It's more like a fine steak, right? You, you chew on it. You enjoy it. You digest it slowly. You savor it. We think about, what does this scripture teach us about myself? What does this scripture teach us about God? How do I apply this scripture to my life? How does this scripture show me the grace I need? How does this scripture encourage me in the fight? You know, we want to be like the blessed man of Psalm 1 who has success in everything he does. And the way that he's described in Psalm 1, we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of scoffers, nor, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but, sounds like it's putting off and putting on, um, going back to weapon 12, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's always thinking about the word of God. Uh, so when you memorize scripture, don't just try and have this mental recollection where you can recite, but, but meditate on them. Or meditate on the scripture you're reading in your devotional time each day. Or the sermon. Or, you know, Romans 8.13, what we're, what we're doing in Sunday school. Don't just move on. Savor it. Digest it. Think about each individual word. Think about how it points you to God or points you to uh, what it says about yourself. Ask how it shows you the mercy in Jesus Christ. Ask how you apply this text to your life. I mean, in some senses, we're doing a three-week meditation on a single verse saying, you know, I'm not giving you more and more meaning to Romans 8.13. We're just stopping a minute. We're slowing down and saying, okay, because this verse is true, what does that mean application-wise to me? Pray through the text a line at a time. Ask the Lord for illumination and application. I mean, meditation is far more difficult than just reading Scripture, even more difficult than memorizing Scripture, because it's going to take time, and it's going to take energy. And those are two resources that are generally hard to come by. But, but I've heard it said that the, the path from your brain to your heart, where Scripture really starts to affect you, where it really starts to change your life, that road is called meditation. So if we want to experience the transforming power of Scripture, if we want to be so marinated in the truths of the gospel where we can fight Satan's accusations and we can fight against the discouragement of failure, then we fight with the weapon of scripture, not just by memorizing it, weapon 15, but also meditating on it, weapon 16. And honestly, if you start meditating on scripture, chances are you're accidentally going to memorize it along the way. Um, so use, use the sword of the Spirit as a weapon. That, that's how it's described. And weapon 17, have a plan. 
right? You can have you can have the biggest arsenal in the world of you know weapons to fight against your sin, but if you don't have a plan to use them, it's not going to do you any good, right? If you if you're trying to form a battle plan in the midst of the battle, it's already too late. You need to be proactive in this and figure out. Okay, I know how my temptation works. How do I need to be active and fight it? Right? We have to plan ahead. You have to build the ark before it rains. Um, John Owen says that we need to fight strongly against the first actings of our sin. Sin is like water in a channel. Once it breaks out, it will have its course. There's no stopping it. So, so what are you going to do? How are you going to enlist your army to help you fight? How are you going to use the memorized scriptures? Who are you going to call for help? Who are you going to confess to? Who are you going to have a conversation with about your heart and not just your behavior? When's that conversation happening? What does it actually look like for you to fight from the outside in and live life without all the conveniences that, that permit you to sin? How do you remind yourself that Jesus is on your team in this war? How do you remember that this war is won? What, what accusations does Satan use that you need to learn a jujitsu move up? No, that truth actually pushes me towards Christ and not away from him. Right? We've all lived with our beloved sins long enough. We, we know how it works, right? Sin's not that creative. It finds a strategy that works to attack us, to, to gain victory over us. And, you know, that works. It's just going to keep on doing the same thing over and over. You know it's MO. So, so what's your plan of attack next time? Don't just take these weapons and be like, man, there's a lot of ways I could fight sin, but never make the plan. I mean, maybe a really practical application for you this, this week is to say, all right, I've gotten the weapons. Now let me draw up my battle plan for when sin and temptation attacks, right? Um, and weapon 18, stay on guard. We don't want to celebrate victory too early against our sin. Don't assume your sin is dead, right? I, I keep seeing the Princess Bride memes all over Facebook. I've just sucked an hour from your life, right? Also, you know, think of Miracle Max, right? It's not completely dead. He's only mostly dead. We don't want mostly dead sin. We want completely dead sin. So, so stay on guard and, and fight, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, you read about the history of Israel. Um, and Paul points out all that they have experienced, right? They, they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They ate the manna. They drank the water that came from a rock in the desert. And yet all of this seeing of God, experiencing his miracles, it didn't prevent them from sinning. It, they still were idolaters, grumblers, and sinners. And while these things happened in history, uh, we're told that they were written down as examples for us so that they would teach us something. And that lesson we should learn, 1 Corinthians 12 says, is let anyone who thinks he stand take heed 
lest he fall. It doesn't matter what kind of spiritual things of God you have seen in the past. Take heed now, lest you fall. Right? Don't get cocky about how you've defeated sin this week, because as soon as you think you stand victorious, you quit depending upon the grace of Jesus to help you. You let your guard down, and what happens? Sin attacks, and you fall. So, so don't stop fighting until sin is actually dead. Not just mostly dead, all the way dead, right? It's a few ways we get tripped up here, a few ways we're mistaken and thinking, yeah, my sin is dead, right? Um, if your sin is just internalized, it's not dead, right? Meaning you've quit acting out on your sin, but you still find inward pleasure by thinking about your sin, by fantasizing about your sin. I mean, this is what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You don't murder, but you still hate. That, that's just as bad. You don't commit adultery, but you still lust. That, that's still bad. Yeah, it, it's progress that you're not, you know, screaming cuss words out loud in your car, but if you're still thinking them, your, your sin is not dead. So stay on guard against internalized sin. Um, stay on guard against exchanged sin. Right, I've quoted at length lots of theologians, Luther, Owen, Bonhoeffer. Here's one from Frog and Toad. Right, I read this to Ella this weekend. Um, Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smell very good, he said. He ate one, and they taste even better. Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I've made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I've ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog, with his mouth full of cookies, I think we should stop eating. We'll soon be sick. You're right, said Toad. Let's eat one last cookie and then we'll stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. There are many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, then we'll stop. So Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. We must stop eating, said Toad as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for another cookie. We need willpower. And so the book, the story's about, you know, the willpower of Frog and Toad. He puts the cookies in a box, thinking that might stop him. And then he ties a string around the box. And then he puts the box up on the very top shelf so they can't reach the cookies. And finally, Frog just takes the cookies outside. He calls for the birds, and he throws all the cookies to the birds so they eat them. Now we have no more cookies to eat, Toad said sadly, not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I'm going home to bake a cake. <laughs> when your sin is transferred from cake or from cookies to cake, it's, it's not dead, right? We just mowed over the dandelions like we talked about last week, and now the, the same roots are shooting up new sins in different places, right? It's no good to trade our anger for avoidance of someone or jealousy for judgmentalism or cookies for cake, right? Stay on guard and fight when your sins merely transferred to a new manifestation, and stay on guard when your sin's merely repressed, right? When, you know what? I'm not really that tempted when I'm just mindlessly watching Netflix and playing games and doing things for hours on end 
where temptation just really doesn't have time to deal with me. If we're filling our lives with things that, that repress temptation but don't actually fight and kill it, we're not dealing with the sin. It, it's going to come back as soon as there's opportunity to attack you again. So stay on guard and fight when your sin is repressed, when it's exchanged, when it's internalized. We don't want to celebrate too early and get cocky and quit relying on the grace of God. Weapon 19, resist the devil. So let me, let me say a word about spiritual warfare here. A lot of times we do weird things with spiritual warfare, especially in fighting sin. Uh, James 4, 7 says this. James writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The call of spiritual warfare is resistance. Stand firm. Don't, don't fall for his lies. Just resist him. I don't remember what I was teaching, but I feel like I just used an illustration about, you know, the sumo wrestler's job is to use all of his energy to stay put, to resist moving, stay grounded in the gospel, resist the devil. Stand firm on what Christ has said about you. When the devil tries to kick you out of the ring, you know, stand firm, redirect energy so you don't move. You just resist. Um, in Ephesians 6, when we're reading all about the, the, what, the spiritual armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, and whatnot, the whole theme of the passage, it's, it's repeated several times through. It says, stand firm. Uh, Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God. Why would we do that? That you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devils. Verse 13, that you may able, be able to withstand. And at the end of verse 13, to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. And, and all the talk about spiritual warfare, we're not casting out demons. We're not, you know, trying to fight the devil and have hedges of protection and territorial whatever. The call of scripture is just to stand firm. Stand on what you know. How can we stand firm against the devil? By loading ourselves up with truth, by memorizing scripture, by meditating on it, by trusting that God has already won this war, by not falling prey to Satan's power, but by turning it against him. So we keep our feet firmly planted in the faith. We're anchored like an old oak tree in a windstorm, right? The wind whips through it. Maybe it even loses a couple of limbs because of the wind. But everything that comes against it, because it's so deeply rooted in the soil, it does not blow over. Your call is to be planted in Jesus Christ. Maybe you feel like you can't resist anymore, but God always gives more grace. We cling to the promise of James 4, 7. If we just stand firm against the devil, he will flee from us. Uh, think about um, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. After Jesus stood firm, after he did not give in, what did Satan do? Um, Luke, what's this? This is 4, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. Um, it says, and after this, the devil left Jesus. Forever? No. Until an opportune time. But after Jesus stood firm, the devil left. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the, and the final weapon, at least for this series, there's a hundred more that we're not even touching that I have 
you know, we haven't discovered in Scripture yet. At least I haven't. Um, I'm sure as you continue to meditate and pray and read through Scripture, you'll figure out more weapons to fight with. Um, but for this morning, weapon 20, draw near to God, right? James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? Fill yourself up with love for God. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. In fact, draw near to him because he has drawn near to you. Jesus, or God initiates this relationship through Jesus Christ. We don't come to him hoping for a response. He comes to us first. Right? Um, Pastor Ray Ortland, he writes about this, the very moment that we give in to our beloved sin yet again. And he says, it doesn't take long to start feeling defeat, disgust, and shame. But what's the Lord feeling at that moment? My heart, or my compassion grows warm and tender, Hosea 11.8. My heart yearns for him, Jeremiah 31.20. Your king is a friend of sinners, Matthew 1.19, not their enemy. When you sin, he is your advocate, 1 John 2.10, not your accuser. Taking his stand as your helper and ally is God's holy calling, his job, you might say. And he loves his job. But doesn't God reach his limit? Isn't there a point where we've sinned so much that he gives up on us? Where we've gone too far, where we've sinned so many times when we can no longer repent and come to him, uh, you know, again for the same failure? Well, what did Jesus mean when he said forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven? To forgive indefinitely. Was Jesus calling us to be different from God? Or is he calling us to be like God who forgives sinners indefinitely? He's calling us to be just like his father who's constantly forgiving. Uh, for FDN, we're memorizing Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Wait, whoa, whoa. Why would God have compassion on sinners? Why would God, par not just pardon, why would God abundantly pardon the wicked, unrighteous man? This doesn't seem like the right thing to do. But if we keep reading, we get the reason why God is so forgiving. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts about your thoughts. Why is God so much more merciful than us? Because God is so much more merciful than we are. We think mercy should have a limit. We think God should not forgive the most wicked of sinners. But God says, I don't think that way. Because I'm God, I have abundant compassion and pardoning mercy. He's far more compassionate than we can ever know. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much more compassionate and merciful God is than we are as his children. In fact, the, the entire book of Hosea is kind of this treatise against Israel's spiritual adultery. 
for, you know, 10 chapters straight. Well, you have the, the narrative about Hosea and Gomer in the first few chapters. Um, but, you know, for eight chapters after that, you have chapter upon chapter of God stacking up this pile of reasons that he should judge his people all the ways that they were consistently unfaithful. He says, the more I called out to you to bring you back to my loving embrace, the farther and the faster you ran away from me. And we get to chapter 11 where the, with this pot is about to boil over and we expect the hammer to fall we expect God's holy wrath to just be poured out on his people. And we read God saying, My heart recoils within me, and my compassion grows warm and tender. I'll not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, his, his people. Why? Because I am God and not a man. I'm the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. We often link God's holiness with his justice, his, his, his you know, vengeance alone. God says, yes, and also because I'm holy, that's why I'm going to forgive. That's why I'm going to be compassionate. My, my holiness means I have this amazing, steadfast, forgiving love that we can't understand. If God was a man like us, Bam, they would have been killed instantly and destroyed. But God says, I'm not like you. I am the Holy One of Israel. And because I'm holy, because I'm God and not a man, I'm going to forgive their sins. The goodness of God should make us want to draw near to him, to draw near in purity and righteousness. As, I mean, isn't the goodness and the joy of being wrapped in God's fatherly embrace better than this temporary sin that the joy that sin promises right it yeah there's a there's a high for a minute but it quickly fades into despair I mean how do we fill ourselves up with God's love how do we draw near to him John Owen again says that many saints have no greater burden in their lives than recognizing that their hearts do not constantly delight and rejoice in God. I feel that. Their spirit is still indisposed. It doesn't want to walk closely with him. What's at the bottom of this? He goes on. Is it not their lack of skill or their neglect of duty in holding communion with the Father in love? We will delight in him only to the extent that we seek God's love. Without this, every other revelation of God will only make us fly from him. But once the heart realizes the, the eminence, the closeness of the Father's love, it can't help being overpowered, conquered, and endeared to him. If nothing else, this will work on us to make our abode with him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Put it to the test. Ponder the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father and see if your heart isn't stimulated to delight in him. I dare say believers will find it as thriving a course as they've ever pitched on in their lives. Sit down for a little while at the fountain and you will quickly discover the sweetness of the streams. If you have run from him in the past, you will not be able to keep your distance for a moment. 
So fill up your heart with the love of God. I mean, the, the situation's been posed before that, you know, you're in the most modern state-of-the-art laboratory. You have all the newest equipment at your disposal. And your task as a scientist is to take a glass beaker and to remove the air from it. What's the best way to do that? You could go and get out the vacuum machine and start sucking air out. But, but the right answer, the best way, is you fill it with water, right? When you put something different in the beaker, there's no room for the air anymore. It's going to naturally come out. Nature and our souls, we hate a vacuum, right? We can't, we can't survive that way. You can't just pump the sin out of your heart and hope it stays gone. You fill up your heart with the love of God, and it pushes out your love of sin. Um, Thomas Chalmers, he called this the expulsive power of a new affection, that when we fill up our hearts with the love of God, the, the love of sin naturally gets pushed out. So we fight for our sin with a greater love, a love for God, the love that God has for us. We fight by drawing near to God. Um, so there's, there's 20 weapons that you have, right? Um, I, I, I could give you more if we had more time. You can find out more weapons. What I can't give you is victory over sin, right? That, that's something God can do and that God will do. He, if he's given you life in Christ, we can be assured that God will give us victory over our sin. Maybe, maybe in this life, definitely in full in the next, he will kill our besetting sins. And we should rejoice in that. Uh, three weeks ago, I started out by, by reading from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, right? It's this fictional story about these ghosts that go from hell up to the plains outside of heaven on a tour bus. They look around and realize, I don't fit here. And they all start to leave for various reasons. We lingered on one ghost from chapter 11, chapter 12 of the book who was taking off back to the bus to go back to hell because he had this lizard on his shoulder who just wouldn't behave in heaven. The, the lizard was his pet sin, his lust. And he was wise enough to realize, like, this guy can't live here. He has no place in heaven. If I'm going to keep this lizard, I need to go back to where my sin can thrive. Um, but this angel met him as he was leaving and says, do you want me to just kill your sin? Like, do you want to stay? Like, I can kill your sin, and you, then you can fit, fit here. And the ghost kind of dodged his questions, and he kind of hemmed and hawed and made excuses of why the lizard shouldn't be killed. But eventually, after a couple pages of this back and forth, the ghost says, okay, go ahead, kill my sin. Let me read here. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one, the angel, closed his crimson grip on the reptile. He twisted it while it bit and it writhed, and then he flung it, broken back down the turf. The ghost reeled back as well. The narrator says, For a moment, I could make nothing out distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arms and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and the hands, the neck and the golden head materialized while I watched. If my attention had not been wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man. 
this ghost turned into someone that was truly human. But his attention did waver over to the lizard, who seemed not to be dead either, but it was struggling and growing bitter, growing bigger. And as it grew, it changed, not to a giant lizard, but, quote, the greatest stallion I've ever seen, silvery white, but with a mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hooves. And this new man, no longer a ghost, jumps on this noble steed, and he rides off into the mountains of heaven. After the sin died, he was transformed into something noble. And it's explained. What's a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with the riches and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. The death of the beloved sin gave way to the power of life, real, true noble, brilliant, exhilarating, wind-in-your-hair kind of life. And that's what we're after, right? So go and by the power of the Holy Spirit, kill that beloved sin. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will really, truly live. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult call to kill sin, to kill sins that we love, that we enjoy, that have been in our, in our lives as a soother, but that we've gotten used to and comfortable with, that we find peace and comfort in, um, even though they lead to our death. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the desire for sin to die. I pray that you would give us the the power to fight it. I pray that you would keep us encouraged in the, in the fights um, as, we, as we experience the mixture of victory and loss. I pray that you would help us. Lord, grant us life. Grant us life to the full in Jesus Christ, not a life that's plagued with all these remnants of death because of the sin in our lives, but a life that is pure and holy and and that is given its life by you. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only one who can defeat our sin. Amen.